Hi everyone, welcome to another episode of Beat the Dealer, Humans in the Environment. And today I have a very special guest, which I'm really excited for everyone to hear because the wisdom that he holds within himself is something that probably needs to be heard by many of us. And so I am just glad that we can share our platform with him. And his name is Clayton Thomas Mueller, and he is the Senior Campaign Specialist at 350.org. And he is part of so many global movements for energy and climate justice. He serves on the board of the Bioneers and the Wildlife Project. He has campaigned all across North America, representing First Nations and Native American communities. He has so much wisdom that I probably can't even do him justice. So let's just jump right into the show and see what he has to say. Welcome, Clayton. Hey, thanks for having me. So you have such a colorful story, and I just really want to talk about it all. From your campaigning work at 350.org on like renewable energy and the climate crisis, all the way to your like your new film, docu-series, Life in the City of Dirty Water, whatever chapter we jump into your life right now, I think it's going to be interesting. So maybe tell us a little bit about your current projects. Yeah, I mean, I can definitely talk about what I'm working on with the team at 350 Canada. You know, right now, of course, you know, we're living in an unprecedented, you know, landscape here in this country that they call Canada. You know, we have, of course, the COVID pandemic here in my own city of Winnipeg. At midnight last night, we went back into red alert, which means all non-essential businesses have been shut down. You know, the schools are still open, having many parents like myself super stressed out about our kids' health. And then, of course, you know, I think many of us Canadians and First Nations alike are really stressed out about the economic circumstances that COVID has created and, you know, are definitely feeling the pinch in the bank pocket and, um, you know, the threat of a massive economic recession, if not depression, looming over uh, this country and countries across the world's heads has got us all stressed out. And then, of course, there's the existential crisis of climate change that continues, um, you know, to rear its ugly head. Uh, all of this, of course, rooted in a broken economic system, you know, that, that we call capitalism. And so 350 and, and many other groups involved in the global climate movement, human rights movements and other social movement across the planet have been all engaged in a very forward thinking conversation that's all about tearing down, um, you know, unsustainable uh, systems of economics across the planet. Uh, and building up something that, you know, doesn't sacrifice certain communities, whether it's in the global south or on First Nations with boil water advisories here in Canada or BIPOC communities in our cities across the country, uh, just so that shareholders of, you know, big oil companies or fossil fuel companies, big emitting companies that are contributing to the global climate crisis can continue to make profit. And, you know, some of us are calling it the Green New Deal. Um, and for our team, you know, we've got our, our, our site laser focused on the Prime Minister of Canada, Justin Trudeau, and his cabinet and their acquisition and nationalization of Kinder Morgan, uh, you know, the Texas-based energy giant's previously owned project, the Trans Mountain Pipeline. And so we've been running a campaign called Defund TMX, and it's all about pressuring this government to just walk away from this project. We've, we know that the price has ballooned from an initial $4.5 billion uh, acquisition cost to over $12 billion. And, you know, at some point here, uh, this late fall, early winter, we're going to find out the true cost of TMX. And we suspect the price is much, much higher. You know, I think an example of that would be Trudeau just announced they are not going to be able to meet 
their commitment to end the boil water advisories on, you know, the over 100 First Nations that continue to have them. But they've got money, you know, to build a pipeline that, you know, many economists have said is not even economically viable at this point due to the massive drop in global demand uh, for oil, especially dirty, unconventional oils like the ones that are being uh, extracted in Canada's Alberta tar sands. Mm, Sounds like you have a lot of things going on there. (laughs) Um, So even with that, (laughs) I have a few questions just from what you said, if we can break that down a little bit. Let's do it. Um, So the first part about Indigenous communities having extra pressure over this pandemic, do you feel that there is extra pressure there? Because we're all in this. No, no, absolutely. Um, It's not just Indigenous communities. I think that anybody that is living below the middle class kind of economic uh, bar that the liberal uh, Trudeau government continually refers to in there as their main priority is being disproportionately affected by the COVID pandemic. Uh, People who don't have that extra money in the bank, who live check to check, uh, low income communities of color, both in the inner city, but also in rural communities, Uh, are being hit uh, particularly hard. When we look at the circumstance in First Nations, you know, it's been decades old, uh, the housing crisis and, you know, homes in First Nations, you know, 12, uh, maybe even more family members living in a three-bedroom home, uh, sharing those facilities. There's a lot of transient people coming in and out, you know, cousins and, 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 you know, aunties and uncles. That's just how it is in a lot of Canada's reserves. And it's particularly acute in the North, and access to clean drinking water and just basic sanitation, you know, all of these things are are really challenged. And so not only do you have to worry about like, you know, actual folks living on reserves getting sick, but you've got every First Nations in Canada's north is beside a mega mine uh, or the tar sands or, you know, some kind of extractive facility or a mega hydro development project, like in the case here in Manitoba. And you've got workers that are flying in and out that are coming in from urban centers into these rural areas that lack in infrastructure, that, you know, don't have healthcare facilities. Most rural communities in the north, if somebody gets sick with COVID, they're going to have to get medevaced, you know, to an urban center in the city uh, to have access to ICU treatment. You know, so it's a, it's a really daunting, you know, reality, I think, that Indigenous peoples face on top of the ongoing battle against systemic racism and colonialism. Um, You know, Indigenous peoples continue to only have control over less than 1% of our land here in Canada. And that is at the crux, uh, I think, of the crushing poverty and all of the factors that come with that, uh, including the disproportionate impact from the COVID pandemic. The current government in Canada um, and Trudeau's team, do you think they're doing enough to help? No, I think that I think that they are. I think they're very excellent at riding the PR wave. We look at the the jousting, you know, the infighting between political parties in in, in the current government. Um, I think that the liberals are are riding a fairly significant wave. Um, they've got probably the best political cover of their bare minimum approach to dealing with Indigenous peoples' grave human rights situations within the Canadian context um, with the U.S. elections occurring right now. Um, you know, Trudeau, I think, rides a lot of, a lot of uh, uh, um, positive um, kind of public relations energy, uh, having, you know, the president to the south be such a psychopath. And just the situation that the United States is facing with their COVID crisis. 
that has emboldened the liberal government to, you know, delay action on murdered and missing indigenous women and girls to announce that they're going to break, you know, the promise that Trudeau gave to First Nations when he first got elected in his previous term, that he was going to solve the boil water crisis, the boldness around, um, you know, supporting the Keystone XL pipeline and its construction in tandem with Jason Kenney, the premier of Alberta, is another example of how emboldened uh, Trudeau feels, even though he goes out into the international world and says that Canada is a climate leader and that he's a climate leader. Um, you know, this guy is is expanding uh, the, the export capacity, of one of the most destructive and, and largest construction projects ever in the history of mankind, you know, the Alberta tar sands. Um, and, you know, for us at 350, um, that's why, you know, we're reaching out to Canadians and Indigenous peoples across Canada and making it very clear that, you know, we're all shareholders in this nationalized, dirty energy project, and we all have a say. And so we've been trying to motivate folks across the country to submit comments on the Crown Corporation that owns TMX, uh, to submit comments and concerns about the pipeline, and to organize across the country. We've called for a National Day of Action on November 17th to ring the alarm. You know, we're going to be doing actions in cities and high-profile targets across the country, of course, taking into consideration, uh, you know, COVID conditions. You know, we don't want people to be endangering themselves or other citizens in the country while holding the government accountable. So there's going to be some really creative stuff popping up on November 17th. I'll share some of those links awesome. as well. So being a senior campaigner at 350.org, um, what does that mean? Is a campaigner the same thing as an activist? I mean, I think that anybody who's taking action uh, against the oppressive forces that would pose unfair circumstances on certain segments of the population to benefit others in power or privilege is an activist. But a campaigner, of course, is just somebody who gets paid, uh, you know, to be a support to people on the front line, create strategies that put pressure in the right place to pull down these houses of power that, uh, you know, do things like try to build pipelines during a climate crisis. And I'm a part of a, a team of campaigners. Some of them are focused on the digital aspects of our of our work. Um, some of us are focused on engaging uh, frontline community folks like myself. You know, I work with a lot of the First Nations um, that are that are living in the right of way, the proposed right of way of TMX, um, that are living uh, around the Alberta tar sands. You know, a lot of the work that we do is really all about taking our skill sets and adding it to a collective force. And, and kind of compounding our capacity into something that when we punch, it's a real punch. <laughs> I'm interested in knowing a little bit more about what happens behind the scenes of a campaigner. Yeah. So at 350, like, how do we get involved? We're out there and we have a calling to use our voice for these oppressive systems, like, you know, what's happening with climate change or whatever. How do we get involved? In yeah, well, I think like, I know for us, like here in Canada, like we don't have any, any actual offices. You know, all of us work remotely. Um, you know, our office is our cell phone and our laptop together for planning over the year. All of that has been affected, of course, by the pandemic. And um, but that said, you know, a lot of our work right now is very much uh, online. You know, to steer people into digital action, targeting industry and, and government. You know, we have weekly, uh, you know, two calls a week as a team check in. Um, talk about, you know, what, are, what we're going to be doing that week, what is our priorities. Um, and then we go out and do our thing. You know, we're able to be in a situation where we can move tens of thousands of people instead of just hundreds or thousands. 
when we look back at the September 27th climate strike when Greta Thunberg was in the country, I think that's an example of good communication, not perfect, but good communication where we we're able to put well over a million people on the streets in cities across the country, mostly children and, and, and youth protesting uh, Justin Trudeau and his decisions on Indigenous rights and climate and the future of Canada's uh, economic paradigm. Mm-hmm. When you, is the New Green Deal in Canada the similar to the one in the United States? Are they connected? No, they're not connected. I mean, I think that for sure there's inspiration that has come from the work around organizing, which was the original inspiration. You know, I think that you're referring to the New Deal one big challenge I think that, you know, people involved in the climate movement continue to deal with is to try and articulate the scale. For example, Seth Klein, Naomi Klein's brother, just came out with a book called A Good War. And what that refers to is, you know, post-World War II, the level that the Canadian and U.S. government and governments across the world went to in terms of rebuilding of the problem and the scale of our response to the problem. You know, many people have said that after such a, a, a devastating crisis in terms of infrastructure investment and, you know, job creation and uh, redistribution of land and resources was unprecedented and unparalleled. And that kind of scale that we're talking about when we say that, you know, we need to transition off of the away from the fossil fuel economy. We're talking about the creation of millions of jobs, repurpose infrastructure in urban centers uh, to be less carbon wasteful. Um, You know, we're talking about a massive transition in our auto-centered transit economy uh, and electrifying, you know, fleets across the continent, across the hemisphere and across Mother Earth. And we're talking about a massive transition in our food security system and, and, and distribution system, you know, our fossil fuel intensive agricultural complex and getting away from such a heavy dependence on unsustainable agricultural practices that are so dependent on fossil fuel, whether it's defunding the police all the way up to defunding the military industrial complex, you know, the U.S. military is the biggest, most carbon intensive polluter on the planet. Um, and there are other militaries that, you know, stack up pretty close to it. And we're talking about a massive transition away from that as well. When we talk about what is a Green New Deal for Canada, for sure, you know, the reference to Green New Deal is a play off of the U.S., you know, whether it's AOC, you know, standing on a table, you know, like with her fist in the air, you know, shouting for a Green New Deal or, or Bernie Sanders or, you know, a, an Indigenous activist, um, you know, Tara Huska at the front line of a fight against the Line 3 pipeline in Wisconsin, um, you know, shouting for a Green New Deal. Like, either way, um, we all are saying the same thing. And in Canada, you know, that means, you know, when we look at what Canada did after World War II, they started a ton of crown corporations that created massive infrastructure uh, uh, investment and jobs. I mean, it was hella racist back then, and it was in the U.S. too. And, you know, a lot of indigenous soldiers and black soldiers and whatnot that came back from World War II didn't get shit. But we can do it differently now, Um, especially when we look at the landscape. You got Black Lives Matter. You got this whole COVID thing. You got this whole economic justice movement coming, you know, in response to this recession. Uh, You got the climate justice movement, indigenous rights movement all rising up. 
it's an unprecedented time for some pretty creative and, and intersectional um, thinking and uh, design. These are all very important modern day topics that we're talking about and very concerning. How does someone go about not being so overwhelmed, adding this on top of mm -hmm. their day to day lives and their own issues of having to feed their kids, maybe losing their job and paying rent and to put something like the climate change or a another type of big cause on top of on their yeah. Mind? Yeah, that's 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 the dilemma I think that we all face, you know, like I've, I've got sons. It's a lot. Do you feel like that is part of the job of a campaigner or an activist to be able to get heard? And because, you know, when we kind of inundate people with so mm -hmm. much, it just makes the world so dystopian. How do we break this down so that they can digest it and be like, OK, I understand the issue and what needs to be done. So not only address the problem, but also let them easily know what the solution would be. Like, how can I help? Well, one thing I can say is that nothing in life is easy. <laughs> I think that's a, that's, you know, anybody out there who's trying to raise a family and, you know, that's involved in, 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 in the race, so to speak, knows that nothing in life is easy. Anything worth mm -hmm. having, anything that is good, you know, you got to suffer for it. You got to really work hard for that stuff. And that that's the reality that we face right now is that, you know, there's this massive gap inside our chests as human beings. It's this emptiness. And we try to fill it with consumerism. And we just like consume, consume, consume. And been indoctrinated into this idea that, you know, time and money and productivity, you know, these are all the, the things that, 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 that provide our self-worth. And that's just not true. I think that governments around the world, when we talk about climate change, have recognized the vital and, and, and crucial role of indigenous knowledge and indigenous practices of, uh, of stewardship um, as probably the main key factor in, in mitigating and adapting and solving the climate crisis. And I think that the rest of the world needs to understand this idea that COVID is forcing us into, that we need to slow things down a bit. And there's nothing wrong with that. We need to reframe. Our, okay. our, the way that we value each other and the way that we rearrange and reevaluate our relationship to the sacredness of Mother Earth. And, you know, that that void inside, the only cure to that greed that we feel, um, that sickness of greed that so many people are, are, are stricken with, this consumption sickness um, that capitalism traps us in, is by having a connection to nature, to the area that you live, to the place where you're raising your family? Do you know the local indigenous language? What territory you're growing up in? Do you know whose indigenous ancestors are, 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 you know, are resting underneath the city that you call home or the municipality you call home? And this is the, the process of decolonization. And this is what, you know, the movement for land back, which I think is a response to the inaction of truth and reconciliation that the government, you know, continues to, to pump down our throats, we have to go through a process in Canada of decolonizing ourselves. And that means slowing down. And when we get overwhelmed by problems like climate change, we have to understand that the solution to any problem that we feel like we don't have control over is community self-determination. Doing it right at the local level, you know, and whether you're involved in city planning agriculture or education, um, 
the way we are going to solve the climate crisis is by respecting people's local autonomy and allowing them the freedom to design their way forward in a bioregional way, in a way that reaffirms um, their community's place in the biological circle of life that they find themselves in, because that is what has uh, <laughs> wrecked the climate and almost wrecked the planet is 250 years of Western uh, industrialization, uh, unsustainable extractive practices, and a patriarchy uh, gone totally toxic. Is there a resource you can kind of direct our listeners to that exists right now for more information well, to learn about this? I, you know, the is resource there... that I direct people to is the storytellers from, you know, powerful storytellers, indigenous and, 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 and non-indigenous alike. And they have video cameras, you know, they, they are doing podcasts, um, they are doing, uh, uh, you know, their own thing. And I think that that the listeners should be should be really proactive about researching, uh, finding out how to get involved in in the movement in a way that that you can contribute best. You know, so if you yourself are a storyteller, you know, find out others, seek out those communities, and and see what they're doing. I think that's one of the agendas that Quantaloupe wants to do. Is I want to use our platform to allow people to mm -hmm. kind of share their voice. Is there a central body that exists right now where we can find out about these storytellers and listen to this story that's not mainstream yeah. news? I, I don't listen to a lot of podcasts yet. I, I'm, I'm kind of just jumping on this train and it's pretty exciting, I got to be honest. And, you know, the, the degree of, of which you can find things that you're passionate about, the accessibility on your device is, is pretty amazing. You just got to hit Google and put what you want to find and, and go for it. The thing I would say, though, to to anybody who's trying to get involved in social movements or, or, or who's kind of sick of the status quo and wants to push the envelope uh, towards systemic change, it's really important to educate yourself, you know, and, and, and if you're going to get involved in, in, in pipeline fights in B.C. or, you know, anywhere or if you're going to get involved in supporting indigenous rights or fighting against police violence uh, against people of color or anything like that, especially if you're a, you know, a European settler presenting person, do your research on, on anti-racism, what it means to be an ally uh, to the community that you're trying to support. Um, and, and a lot of, a lot of white folks, you know, they, they really get exhausted from, you know, how many times they have to hear that's racist or you're being racist or that offends me from people of color. Um, you know, and, and I think that, that 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 one of the one of the things that folks need to think about when they go through those feelings is imagine how exhausting it is when you have to deal with, you know, the same questions uh, about or the same kind of, you know, responses to to when when brown and black people are calling out racism. I guess what motivates me um, as a father, you know, to be involved in the movement to the degree that I am to do the storytelling that I do is that I want my sons, you know, long after I'm gone, you know, to be, when they talk to their kids about their mushum, I want my sons to say, you know, he did everything he could. Yeah, do you feel in the background, what you kind of went through in life has kind of shaped your future right now? Like why you've become a campaigner at 350.org? Yeah, absolutely. Um, how, how did you get into it? And what made, what was the attraction to you to um, this space? Well, you know, like I moved around a lot as a kid. Um, 
and uh you know my mother my mother for the most part raised me on her own um you know i had a, I had a few different dads i guess over my childhood and you know all three of them um taught me um you know lessons on on how not to be a dad <laughs> um and uh you know and i'm grateful to all those men uh for their mistakes and showing me you know um i guess a better pathway forward when it comes to raising raising little ones um and you know i think that my mom you know she moved me around a lot as a child you know i, I lived in a, a bunch of different provinces you know quebec manitoba bc and um you know i think that you know for me uh growing up um you know with a single native mother you know a survivor of residential school um you know it was a very it was a very intense way to grow up you know it wasn't always the best the best times but it was very powerful too and i saw how hard my mother worked you know she worked very hard you know raising me and and my my siblings um you know getting a university degree the first one in our family to graduate from university um and yeah yeah congratulations She's super badass yeah accomplishment uh, and you know as a matter yeah. of fact we finally just had the yeah. second person in our family to graduate from university you know like 35 years later you know my cousin alex just graduated with her ba and just to just to demonstrate how how big that of a deal that is eh so that was my mom and i think that take that for me growing up and moving around a lot, you know, it, 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 it taught me how to, how to make friends, how to talk to folks, how to fit in real easy, assimilate to my, my circumstances. Um, and I, you know, I, I think one of the challenging things for me, you know, growing up and moving around so much, um, was just the whole kind of connection. You know, I didn't really get a connection to the, to the sacredness of a place until I was a teenager. Um, you know, my mother had, had got a job up in Northern BC in the Skeena Valley in a town called Terrace, BC. Uh, you know, she's a psychiatric nurse there at the hospital. And, you know, it was kind of this redneck logging town. And, uh, you know, if I wasn't fighting with the white kids there, then I was fighting with the Shimshan and Nishka boys. Cause I was, I looked different. I was Cree from the prairies. Um, and yeah, it was a really intense place to grow up. Um, so I spent a lot of time just avoiding town and 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 and, and you know exploring all of the tributaries and 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 you know mountain glacial rivers that feed into the Skeena River uh, with my dog. And I would fish and and I would pick berries. And you know I spent a lot of time um, just connecting out in nature. You know harvesting mushrooms and you know doing things that that that, um, you know, natives out that way, you know, I'd been doing for thousands of years. And I think that that instilled in me a real, uh -huh. a real, it, it planted a seed in me because, you know, years later I would return back up north and, you know, support communities that were fighting against the um, Enbridge uh, Northern Gateway pipeline. And we, we won that campaign, you know, we defeated that pipeline. Uh, and now, you know, of course, um, in that part of the world, there's a massive fight led by First Nations, the Wet'suwet'en in particular, uh, with support from, you know, Gitsan and, and many others against the coastal gas link pipeline, uh, which is a liquid natural gas, uh, you know, massive infrastructure project um, that the BC government has doubled down on. And, you know, and, and, and it's just it's just ironic, you know, that this is the kind of, you know, that my work is directly tied 
um, to the place that, you know, I feel like I connected to the most growing up as far as that relationship to nature. You know, I hadn't had that kind of relationship that I experienced in DC as a teenager uh, since I had been a very small child when my mother would take me up to my grandfather's trap line in northern Manitoba, you know, and I'd sit there as a as a toddler, you know, four, three or four years old on the dock and watch my great grandfather pull the nets in and bring these huge fish to shore, you know, and we go shoot chickens in the forest and that sort of thing. And yeah, I mean, aside from those experiences, you know, I spent most of my time growing up and, you know, here in the inner city of Winnipeg and, and, uh, you know, it's a very, very different reality. Yeah, residential schools. Was that your mom that was in the residential schools, or was you? No, also no, no. I, I, I never went to residential schools. As a matter of fact, I was the first in my family not to attend residential schools. You know, folks have to realize residential school closed down. I think in 1994 in this country, and people when they think about residential schools, they think about the old black and white pictures from the late 1800s, and you know, feel like it was go but you know my, my ma is, is 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 in my living room to me and you know and she she attended residential school um you know all the way up until grade or 11 i think uh, from kindergarten um so absolutely to talk to her about that experience we, we can hook that up but that's the thing you know it's it's a very recent thing yeah. and and you know there's an actual medical reference to you know what what native families residential school survivors at the head of them you know go through and there's a it's called res, uh, intergenerational residential school syndrome um and it's a force disorder that that comes i think with a combination of blood memory you know and um you know, right through our right through our blood to our, our children you know the trauma included um what i find interesting yeah. that our listeners know to we actually and we had some mutual friends back up in Prince Rupert. And, you know, you tell him these stories, such a different parallel life at that time, because while I was kind of grew up in, you know, the government housing part, and I had a lot of friends that mm-hmm. were natives, and that was a term back then. And then it became Aboriginal. Now, I guess it's Indigenous. Is that correct? Well, what That's I would always right encourage term? folks is like, like what your territory you live in is like in, 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 in your home, like in, in Prince Rupert, um, you know, a universal thing uh, to refer to, but it's even better if you if you can, you know, understand where you're at um, as far as like the actual, um, you know, of the territory you know, is based on the name Manitouabe, the sacred place where creator sat. Um, so, yeah, you know, mm-hmm. but you could take it a step further. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> yeah, about that. Um, so yeah, yeah, just to complete that story, I was saying is, you know, I when I was kind of like in my own little bubble, and while I was around all the Indigenous Native kids, and they were all my friends, you know, behind closed doors, I didn't really know the issues that you mm-hmm. all were facing. And maybe it's because we're all growing up, and we all have our own coming of age story or whatever. Um, learning about that, about, you know, Orange yeah. Shirt Day, and residential school, Growing up in Prince Rupert, we exposed to that. It was never talked about. And in that era, last residential school is 1994. Looking back, there are people that was going through that. How come mm-hmm. it wasn't talked about? And is it, and then it came up surface later on? 
Um, I'm just curious yeah. how I was so removed. No, definitely. I mean, Canada, you know, since I think the late 90s has been, you know, going through a cultural, um, as far as Indigenous peoples. Folks, um, I, I think have lost since since the Oka crisis. Um, you know, I think, I know for me, that's when it started for me. When I watched uh, Ellen Gabriel and, and, and all those those warriors on, on TV with my parents, um, you know, asserting their jurisdiction, sovereignty, and 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 saying no, you're not going to luxury golf course and condominium development over our ancestors' graveyard, <laughs> um, and, and and you know, in the large military since the Korean War occurred against you know a few dozen Mohawk warriors uh, who who are trying to tell white premises developers that they couldn't ban the nine horse and Oka, you know, over a, a stand. Oh, we don't have to put up with this bullshit. Uh, I think I was 11 or, or 12 at the time. And, um, you know, national chief getting on national television and saying, uh, you know, yeah, I'm the national totally abused in residential schools. And so were thousands of other kids physically, emotionally and sexually, uh, spiritually. Um, you know, there were in the last 20 years that have gotten us to this point where, you know, indigenous peoples in collaboration with predominantly young people, um, you know, native or not, um, you know, have gotten to a place where the Canada um, before the COVID pandemic uh, uh, quarantine coming. And, you know, were, were these stories, over, you know, over the years that the Canadian government, whether it's NDP, liberal or conservative, um, you know, they're all birds of a friend. The Canadian economy is fundamental, and its success, in its current success, inextricably linked oppression of Indigenous people's collective rights to the elimination over the access and control of our land and the dispossession of us from our territories into Canada's urban centres and disenfranchisement uh, of our of our um, as Indigenous peoples uh, to become, you know, taxpaying citizens. Um, and, you know, of impacts, including murdered and missing Indigenous women and girls, um, because our people, when they get cities with no social safety net, um, they tend to be the ones who are represented in most negative statistics, whether it's incarceration, uh, adolescent teen pregnancy, you know, you name it. People and their exposure to, to, to all of the social movement that are, you know, flaring up in these beautiful um, you know, fires across and across the world, you know, they're, they're world. And it's only a matter of time, you know, once these boomers kind of, kind of either, you know, lose control, you know, kind of step back coming up, um, that have an intersectional analysis that believe that, you know, truth and reconciliation, just apologies. It's, it's about, you know, land back. It's about, you know, doing the right thing, you know, who believe last year on September 27th, marching in the streets, you know, calling for climate justice and to shut down these these pipelines that are going to expand the tar sands. I mean, some of these kids were like eight years old. <laughs> um, so there's a new generation that's coming up. Mm -hmm. when, when people get overwhelmed, they have to understand that 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 you could do you could do the bare minimum or you could, you know, do something um, you know, that inspires generation to take it farther than we ever could. And I, and for me, going back to your question about how do we deal with the apathy or being locked in, in kind of terror over these global issues, you know, talk about it with your kids, talk about it with your coworkers and, and organize discussions, you know, start small and see 
how much you can achieve uh, with a small group and then expand your group and see how much you can achieve with a bigger group. And eventually maybe that's your whole community, um, you know, with the government community self in anti-racial, uh, uh, anti-oppressive, um, you know, justice. To digest as well. <laughs> um, I, I really would love to talk to you about is land back in Canada and what does that mean? And how does it tie back to, I guess, the older indigenous of managing land mm-hmm. and land stewardship? And you did mention here is indigenous land. Is well, right I mean, term? all of it's indigenous land. Um, you know, like that's you no, know, uh, they'll all over it. I, I didn't benefit, you know, from, 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 you know, like da, 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 da. There's a bunch of typical responses by, uh, you know, settlers generation or, or fourth generation um, to the question of, of uh, you know, white privilege, you know, the question for indigenous peoples as a result of the violent way that this country was founded. Um, but the thing to understand wars in Canada, like there was never great Indian wars like there were in the United States, um, you know, of legally binding agreements made between the crown uh, you know, the colonizers and peoples to share the land, you know, to, you know, to quote the treaty in Southern Ontario, you know, it's, it's this belt with these, these stones on it. There's two bars representing two canoes going down a river and not crossing each other's paths. Um, or if you look at the treaty medallion here in Manitoba, you know, you've got a, a, a colonizer, a settler representing the crown and a, an indigenous leader, and uh, you know they're shaking hands, but there's a hatchet in the ground, and that that hatchet represents you know yeah we'll we'll share the resources, but if you if you break the agreements, the the good faith, um, you know then I'll chop your hand off. As far as how history is interpreted, um, the bad faith that and there's a duplicate meaning of that hatchet. You know the hatchet also only means that that the settlers only have the right to do agriculture six inches deep in the ground, the depth of the hatchet. They have no mineral rights. Um, and so there's a lot uh, uh, you know, negotiated agreements with natives across, you know, these lands that they call Canada. Um, but the fact of the matter is that, you know, there's, a, and I think that that way flying back, um, you know, be poor because we're lazy or because we can't get jobs. Um, you know, we're poor because it continues to try and control um, our access to our lands and resources. And, you know. And back there, though, um, what does that mean? Like, is there a certain percentage or you uh, want it all? Back? All of it. <laughs> all I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's funny, eh? Like, having... it, there's always the alarmists. And, and you know, it, I say alarmists, but what I really mean is white supremacists. That'll just be like, oh. If we give it back to those natives, they're just going to do the same thing anyway, you know, if not worse, you know, um, and, it, and it's, you know, the, 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 uh, in North Vancouver, um, and, you know, all those people condos around the malls and Squamish, uh, you know, by Squamish reserve, uh, on the North shore in Vancouver, were like, Oh my God, they're going to steal our condos. They're going to do this. They're going to do that. And the natives were like, no, we're just your landlords now. So you give us taxes, not the white man. That's it. You can live there. <laughs> So, so I guess my uh-huh. being Canadian, being Chinese, non-white, hmm. tons of nuns, um, you know, I'm, uh, out of curiosity, is is if, if 
situation, what you just said, if, if, if um, can mm-hmm. to the natives, um, it like handle that if people to kind of put together an structure. Is there enough? Cause there's, I feel like it's a little bit missing is, is, is there security enough for a million people? If, if the infrastructure have transitioned over, you know, and disrupted everything, be like, okay, you know what, we'll, we'll do it your way here. Take, hundred percent of Canada from the queen, <laughs> you know, uh, well, I like that apart. at all. And I think that's a highly unlikely scenario. And I, you know, what I would say is this, you know, Canadians are not a monolith and neither are first nations. Um, you know, we've got greedy capitalists like pro oil, pro Trump, you know, indigenous folks in our communities, you know, we've got that uncle that comes at, you know, on, 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 uh, you know, talks all kinds of crazy shirt from Fox News. <laughs> um, but uh, any other, any other, uh, other community, think that, that when I say that, you know, folks need to make relationships as they figure out how their community is going to survive the, the climate crisis. You know, how are we going to create jobs uh, to redesign our Right now is about like having... Mm-hmm. real solutions so when you have an aspiration such as oh mm-hmm. we want all of it back i mean if you know that that's probably not an ideal situation um shouldn't we start off with no. taking small steps to no reach you shouldn't because again no? i you know I, I go back to the monolith piece and you know the the, the, the you know the is 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 idea that indigenous peoples are are, are like a monolith like we're some kind of like one group and that's just not true. And when we look at it through the political and legal identity and the fiduciary and legal responsibility that the federal government has to each individual First Nation, um, you got to understand that, like, you know, there's over 600 languages in this country of indigenous peoples um, divided into thousands of like dialects. And each one of those language groups is tied to the biological region that they live in and the all of the lessons through thousands of years of observation of how to take care of that land and water lives in those languages because our languages are not rote you know we're we're polyamorphic um, we're oral oral history um all of our knowledge passed down through song ceremony mm-hmm. and, and 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 the language itself um and that's the you know analogies that binds indigenous peoples but the difference between those language groups is polish to chinese um so we're very, and, you know, the federal government, they do this in BC and people in BC, especially will, will hear that 30 First Nations that signed agreements with Trans Mountain Pipeline. And there's just a couple that say no. But the fact of the matter is that the federal government's um, fiduciary and legal obligations are to each individual First Nation. And it only takes one First Nation to assert their sovereignty to kill a project like the TMX. Uh, it takes a long time and it's a big scrap and the burden of proof is on First Nations, the way that the government's rigged the system here in this country. Um, but the government continues to need the non-native Canadian public to believe that, oh, well, it's just one First Nation, blah, 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 blah. But it's like at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter what the public thinks or what the Canadian government thinks. Um, you know, is how many times the Supreme Court sides with Indigenous peoples on on, on, on these fights instead of right now mm-hmm. being solution oriented and really being able to move things down the pipeline so that we can mm-hmm. actually make some change right so i 
even with me right now, I yeah. love what you're saying about these stories through song and through dance and passed on. Um, I don't know what terminology yeah. you use. It's quite new to me. But I would love to kind of transcribe that stuff and take those lessons of how mm. you guys steward the land and how right now, how how do we go about that? Like, what is the next step? You know, when we focus so far and into a vision, it's hard to kind of chew. <laughs> um, I'm just wondering right five years, what is what is that like? And how how does someone like, you know, first of all, we need more businesses that take into consideration, you know, uh, like SRI, you know, profit driven uh, goals, uh, you know, in, in the United States, they call them corporate structures. And there's other kind of new things coming out in the socially responsible investment world, um, especially with with so many economic portfolios divesting from fossil fuel. And um, I think there's changes in, 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 in that whole world, uh, false solutions and kind of profiteers that are looking to profit off the global climate crisis, you know, the carbon creditors, for example, um, you know, who are selling commodifying to the global south and even here in Canada. Um, through global programs like the uh, Destructive World Bank uh, REDS um, Forest Offset Scheme Program. Um, you know, we need to be very cautious uh, about, you know, the false solutions and the positions. But I think that, you know, business uh, uh, that, you know, turn either a percentage uh, or um, that are reinvesting. In, I mean, that is the future. You know, we need to be these for-profit initiatives that are making a difference and that can continue to make a difference. I think, you know, when we talk about it in the context of land back, um, I see over and, you know, instances where folks are returning land to the local tribe or First Nation or Alaska Native community or Pacific Islander community um, that it originally belonged to for them, uh, you know, to utilize that resource, um, you know, under their own sovereignty. I think that we need to continue, you know, this was a, a you know, there was an example of this in Nebraska, um, you know, where farmers returned Ponca tribe so that they could grow their, their traditional heirloom corn on it. Um, it. It was funny corn or something, because they grew this corn in the pathway of the proposed Keystone XL pipeline. Um, and Willie Nelson did like a big concert, you know, on that returned land, uh, you know, for the Ponca people and everybody involved in the movement to stop the Keystone pipeline. And, um, you know, there's there's examples of like really positive uh, transference of, you know, stolen lands back to indigenous peoples. Um, you know, and you you taught you ask 1 percent. Well, that that fact, you know, that statistic comes from. The late Chief Arthur Manuel, the founder of the Indigenous Network on Economies and Trade, and you know Art, you know he he's famous for saying, um, "You got to stop crying on the guy who stole your land," you know. And his whole his whole book was all about how if Indigenous peoples just had uh, access and control of the land and resources, we wouldn't need. Uh, to have transfer payments from the federal government, the settler colonial state government, because we'd have our own economic base. Um, and we don't need indigenous peoples trying to guide us on that. I mean, we, we've lived in our lands for thousands and thousands of years collectively uh, in our own territories. And so I think that that's, that's where, like, I think, like, both the, the for-profit sector, the non-profit sector, and this gray area where the jagged edges meet, where there's these new types of business models coming out that are socially responsible, that are interested in, you know, being more anchored in the Canadian territory where they're operating out of and are contributing back in a way that's not just, that's not just, um, 
here, but actually like what can we invest um, these resources in that really speeds up and moves the Overton window uh, uh, in terms of what's possible uh, moving forward. Um, you know, I, I, yeah. Thank you for that. Last an hour and it <laughs> sounds like we have so many topics. So I would yeah, love for you to come I'm... back on the show and um, people find you. And is there any websites or anything that you want people to follow for more information? If they want to Definitely. Out, I mean, folks can always visit 350.org. Um, you can sign up. You know, our CRM will know where you're at. And of course, uh, you know, if you're here in Canada uh, or the U.S. or anywhere, you know, you'll receive, um, you know, updates that make sense for where you're living in terms of the work that 350 is doing and how you can, you know, support and be a part of it. Um, you know, follow uh, at 350 Canada on Twitter, um, you know, follow 350 Canada on Instagram and Facebook as well. You can follow me at Cree Clayton on Twitter, Clayton underscore Thomas underscore M-U-L-L-E-R on Instagram. And I'm on Facebook as well. Um, and yeah, you know, uh, you know, and, 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 and have those conversations uh, with your family and your coworkers and uh, your community.